You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Hi, thanks for joining us on Absolute AI. I'm your host, Melody Travers, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Littman, the co-founder and managing partner of Lucy AI, an AI-powered knowledge management assistant. Scott is an entrepreneur in search of new ways technology can advance the mission of knowledge workers, from the early days of the internet and the first websites to business portals of the dot-com era, to the latest generation of artificial intelligence, Scott has a long history of building businesses that help Fortune 1000 companies take advantage of cutting-edge digital transformation. Welcome to Absolute AI, Scott. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. So how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a beautiful fall day in Minnesota, and we've had a great week and actually a great month. Business environment has been very strong. And we're seeing new customer acquisition. We're seeing renewals and expansions. So it's been a good season. A good week. All right. I love to hear that. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you first became interested in technology. Absolutely. So I grew up in the era where technology was just starting to burst forth. When you look at, you know, Gates and Jobs creating Microsoft and and Apple, I was a kid. And I looked up to these guys and said, this is this is the future. And so I knew that I would be a tech entrepreneur. It was mm -hmm. just in my blood. When I went to the University of Minnesota, I competed in a, a contest of, to kind of predict the future that Apple put on, finished third in the country. Uh, when oh. I graduated from the University of Minnesota, uh, launched my first business, which was an early digital pre-press and publishing company. And since then, over the last 20 some years, I have built five companies. I've been an E&Y Entrepreneur of the Year. I've built Inc. 500 companies. Uh, as an entrepreneur, my four prior ventures all were high growth, servicing mm -hmm. Fortune 1000 in the areas of marketing services and, and uh, technology services. And they all had exit events, meaning companies like Comcast or 3M's Emation or WPP or most recently Mindtree out of India were acquirers of those companies that my business partner and I built. And so it's just been in my DNA to want to create things, be an entrepreneur, uh, and really live on not necessarily the bleeding edge, but the leading edge of where technology is, and hopefully have a good eye for what are the trends that are coming that are going to change the way people work. So how do you distinguish the bleeding edge from the leading edge? So through my first four ventures, we were partners or resellers or implementers or consultants around the next technology. For example, in my last venture, which was a 200-person Salesforce consultancy, and Salesforce was our lead investor, we were very early on in recognizing the trend that Salesforce was buying marketing technology companies because they were going to build a marketing cloud. We were early on in saying that the magic would be combining sales cloud and marketing cloud. And so the leading edge is recognizing this is not just going to be something they're trying to do, but it's actually something that's going to work. And then capitalize on that by bringing that reality to customers that were leading edge themselves saying, we want to be the first benefactors. But the bleeding edge is the step before that. Hmm. 
this, the bleeding edge is being the crazy mad scientist. It's like, <laughs> hey, we should go do this. And a lot of those bleeding edge people, their things don't necessarily work. And so it's one skill to be on that bleeding edge. It's another skill to actually be on it and make it work. It's another skill on the leading edge to recognize the people that are winning on the bleeding edge. And in my career up to this point, we've generally been on that leading edge side of recognizing the brilliance of others. That's great. So before we get into uh, to Lucy AI, which you co-founded in, in 2016 with your business partner, Dan Mellon, did I hear this correctly, that this is your fifth venture together? It is our fifth venture together. And along with that, we also created a nonprofit called the Minnesota Cup, which is the largest statewide business plan competition in the U.S. as well. Wow. Okay. So, so tell me, how did you two meet and start working together? So match made in heaven. Uh, <laughs> I was an entrepreneur building my first business. Dan was early in his life at 3M. Mm -hmm. as a up and rising IT leader, and he was my customer. And he was a bit of a bleeding edge or a leading edge guy, I should say himself, in that he was the corporate maverick. He was the person pushing 3M into the uncomfortable areas of what they could do in digital prepress, what they could do in the early days of the internet. He built the first 3M.com and we were the, and I was the vendor that built that with him. But we did so much together, we started to realize, hey, we could do better than just customer vendor. Huh. And we became business partners. And ever since then, it's actually been awesome because while there are plenty of lone wolf entrepreneurs out there that have done their own thing, and you know, while we think of Gates, but what's Gates and Paul Allen, you know, think about jobs right. and jobs and Wozniak. Right. And I think that entrepreneurs are better in teams because I'm not good at everything. In fact, there's only certain things I'm good at, but the things I'm worst at, Dan is best at, and the uh, things he's worst at, I'm best at, and it kind of creates a bit of a you know Reese's peanut butter cup. The two of us together are so much better than either alone. Oh, that's so great. And I love you calling out this idea of teamwork that is so important. I mean, most of the great projects, most of the great inventions, honestly, are are not carried on Atlas's back, you know, one right. person taking on the whole world. So that's really wonderful. Well, and I love that, like, in a pure partnership, I'll come up with an idea, and I might think it's great, and then Dan will push at it, and he'll make it better, or he'll shoot it down, hmm. or we'll come up with something completely different out of it, or vice versa. I might do the same with him. And because you're peers, and you respect each other, and because there's so much trust, you can get a lot done because of it, which is very different than traditional, you know, employee relationships. Yeah. Uh, although I will say good entrepreneurs hire people that are way smarter and better than them and recognize <laughs> their talents and bring those out and take it, you know, and, and, you know, they, their success is based on the ability to bring together all those talents of all those great people above and beyond just the partnership itself. Absolutely. Okay. So tell me about Lucy AI. What did she look like as a prototype when you began yeah. pitching the company? So we have a third partner, Mark Dispenza, who's been our CTO and really is the father of, of Lucy. And where Dan and I have been business partners, we've oftentimes had another partner in the mix. Mm -hmm. And in this venture, it's Mark. And Mark is a brilliant technologist. And we were just in the process of selling our prior company. 
And Mark was playing around with really the IBM Watson AI services and components. Hmm. And we're really fortunate. You know, IBM spent a fortune on the creation of Watson and all this technology. And they put a huge effort to say, we're going to release these objects, these components, these products, these services. And there's dozens of them. And we're going to allow developers to, to build things with them. And so way before others in the commercial space were releasing this stuff, hmm. IBM had taken, you know, a billion dollars of investment and said, here, go play with it. And so Mark started playing and he showed Dan and I stuff that he was playing with and saying, hey, I think I could do this. I think we could do that. He started marrying some technology that we had built in other areas with some of the AI stuff he was playing with. And we built some really, I should say, he built some really intriguing prototypes. And we're like, well, this is a company. This is, we could do something with it. <laughs> and so we, you know, we got excited and we, we experimented in actually multiple different areas of AI. The one that we have really sunk our teeth into is how Lucy can answer questions against unstructured data and now actually structured and unstructured data. We also looked at ways that AI could play into media optimization. We looked at it into audience analysis, but it was this area of the ability to ask questions and get answers. That was the thing that out of the kind of the three concept prototypes that really stood out where this is, we could solve a really, really big problem and do something great with this. So how, how has Lucy evolved? You talked about it a little bit, but yeah. so you had this AI prototype, this agent, you know, that has a some natural language processing in there, dealing yep. with some unstructured data. How has that evolved and how did you start building that up and, and getting customers actually interested in, in adopting this? Yeah, well, there's a lot that goes with that. So I'll start with the evolution of Lucy, you know, where we originally had, you know, 15 different Watson, you know, APIs and services, you know, we now have a couple. We have either written or created our own things in some uh, places we have um, leverage technology of others, but we have evolved to the point where after the last five years, Lucy's now in her well into her third major release. Mm -hmm. you know, we're on Lucy 3.0 and really um, well into that life cycle on our way to 4.0. Things have happened like in the earliest days, we used to have to spend over 200 hours of training time mm -hmm. on a particular brand or business unit. Wow. And we thought, well, that's in some ways, he said, well, if you're training in a new employee, you say, well, 200 hours, so, you know, a month's worth of training, and then they're going to be proficient to do the job. Well, one of our learnings is nobody wants to spend 200 hours in training. <laughs> um, they just, they, they've made a, a bet that this new AI is going to do something useful, and they want it to be productive right away. Mm -hmm. And so like in our first generation, there was 200 hours of training. In our second generation, there was, we'll lead the training and try to train ourselves and get to the point where the system's really functional. Mm -hmm. And in our third generation, the machine learning is strong enough on its own. And, it, you know, we still benefit from customer interaction to, you know, to become smarter and smarter. But we've really replaced all of that manual training time or upfront training time. And that's part of the journey. We have, you know, where we started with, we can work with unstructured data. Now we have connectors to, you know, SharePoint, um, Teams, Streams, OneDrive for Business, Box, Dropbox, Google Drive, Ignite, Office 365, Azure Cloud, Amazon Cloud, and dozens of different systems and tools from Tableau and Power BI to KnowledgeHound to vendors like Mintel, Euromonitor, eMarketer. So 
every one of these are connectors we've created where initially it was like, hey, if we could just take some, you know, raw documents and PowerPoint, PDF and Word. Right. And also now there's connectors to those document types, as well as dozens of formats of audio and video. And and, you know, so we've got all these different file connector types. We've got all these different first party integration types. We have all these third party systems and tools. We also have evolved our ability to automatically ingest content. We've evolved our ability to automatically tag content. We've evolved. I mean, every step, there's different pieces of evolution. And some of it is inspiration that's from whether it's founders or our leadership team or our rank and file. Mm -hmm. Some of it is our customers saying, wow, if it just did this. And we're like, oh, oh. how would we, we miss that? That's brilliant. <laughs> we, we should do that. That's a great idea. And so... There's this massive collaboration between our customers and the people inside of Lucy. And part of that evolution, then you bring in the customer equation. It's really hard. Like, when do you start selling to a customer? Um, originally, you know, we would de-risk it for the customer by saying, well, the license is just $10,000 a year, like mm -hmm. next to nothing. Right. But then we didn't have a very complete package at the time. You know, now we're on the uh, on the path of, you know, the typical customer starting at $150,000 a year, and we've got engagements that go way, way beyond that. Mm. But it's also because the utility has gone up dramatically. I was with a customer the other day, and I was running a workshop with them. And the idea was, you know, bring your research challenge into this workshop. Like, what is your active project? What are the things you would do? And there is state today, pre-Lucy, would, would be, well, I'm going to log into eMarketer. I'm going to log into Mintel. I'll log into Euromonitor. I'm going to go into 10 different SharePoints. And in each place, I'm going to do keyword searches, get collections of documents, look in the documents, and then do keyword searches inside the documents. And it's taken me hours and hours and hours. So we did a workshop and said, let's, let's see what we can do in a half hour. And it was so cool for me. Like, I was doing what, you know, I was helping them with what Lucy should do. But I'm geeking out because of their excitement going, oh, my God, I just like I didn't know we had that. I didn't uh. know we had that. This is so cool. And like they tagged in a 30 minute workshop, they tagged, you know, 12 to 15 pieces of research, specific answers within articles so they could go back to them later. And at the end, when they said, well, we just found more in 30 minutes than I found in the last month pre this meeting. Like, this is amazing. So, like, we geek out when we get to hear customers have that kind of reaction. Absolutely. And it's really fun. Now, we couldn't have done that three years ago or four years ago or five years ago. The software wasn't good enough. Like, three years ago, I'm like, hey, we found something. Like, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and, you know, we would have to, you know, we'd have to work at it. Whereas, you know, now it's it's just it's everything's constantly evolving. So, Tell me about the the training process because that I mean that's truly amazing where you have like you said you started with this 200 hours lots of manual labor and how do you keep Lucy up from you know mitigate bias and data drift and things like that do you still have a humans in the loop for for training or it has it gotten to the point where we're midway between humans in the loop and the singularity. <laughs> well, I <laughs> right. I certainly envy how like a Google or even a Microsoft of Bing, as small as their traffic is compared to Google, how many millions of interactions they get against their AI to mm -hmm. train it. You know, we get a fraction of that. But that right. said, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of active users asking, you know, 
100,000 questions in, in a wide body of questions. And since most of it is in areas that today are still in either research or insights, or as we start branching out, it's in HR onboarding employees, it's in sales enablement, IT mm -hmm. support, are these areas we're in. And so Lucy's had a really good body of questions that have been asked. And mm -hmm. all of that ends up affecting the knowledge of the system. Because what happens is if somebody asks a good question, and whether it was three years ago or today, if they ask a good question, they're happy. They give a little thumbs up because there's a thumbs up, thumbs down in every question. And so Lucy is doing what she should do. But three years ago, she would miss like 35% of the time. Right. You know, now she misses like 10% of the time or 15% of the time. And but and the reasons she used to miss sometimes was just AI wasn't good enough. Today, when she misses, it's because of something that's really clear. There isn't good content in the system that would answer the question. Huh. Maybe we need to use this to say, we don't have content on this. We should, should we connect to another SharePoint? Are there areas in your organization where data lives? Mm -hmm. If we can answer a question, did they use some jargon or vernacular or something that doesn't make sense to the system. For example, one of the industries we've been in is the entertainment industry. Somebody asked a question about the movie Toy Story 3. Mm -hmm. Well, Lucy knows what a toy is. Ah. She knows what a story is. <laughs> and she knows the number three. But nobody had ever asked her about Toy Story 3 as a thing. Like you and I, we hear it like, well, of course, it's conceptually, it's it's Woody, it's Buzz, it's right. you know Slinky and Mr. Potato Head. Lucy but wasn't a kid in the 90s. <laughs> no, she wasn't. And so we actually realized, oh, she doesn't know this. She right. can't possibly answer this. Actually, Toy Story 3 in the middle of other words is just a bad sentence. Right. So we had to build into that customer's glossary and synonym library the mm -hmm. understanding of Toy Story is different than Toy Story 2, which is diff different than Toy Story 3, which is diff different than Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War and all the other mm -hmm. entertainment properties that the major, you know, Sony and Disney and Warner and others have. And so that's part of her journey. We'll look at it and say they got a bad answer. Why? Oh, yeah. she didn't know that word yeah. or she didn't have that content. The other thing we fight, and this one drives me crazy, is about 20% of all queries and maybe 40% of early users, like in their first couple of uses, are keywords. And it's mm. like, how can you expect a keyword to do anything? And when mm. I say that, imagine a food company. And we work with a lot of CPGs. So imagine a food company and somebody types in cheese. <laughs> well, what do you want to know about cheese? <laughs> and then we have this process where if they don't get the answer they're expecting, they can give us some feedback. It's called Lucy Assist. And somebody says, well, I didn't find what I was looking for. And we ask them, what were you looking for? And then they'll say, well, I was looking for competitive cheese sales in the Latin American market. And we think, I mean, I look at it, and I'm like, you really thought cheese was going to get you that. <laughs> and so, but the thing is, if you type in to Lucy, I'm looking for competitive cheese sales in the Latin American market. And by the way, add, you know, in you know, 2020 or in 2021, she's going to come back with really great answers for that. But you need to give us better than a keyword. So the things we see when people struggle are they use keywords, there's no right content that isn't in the system, or maybe there's synonyms or glossary terms that we need to train into the system. But the cool thing is every interaction makes Lucy smarter. Mm -hmm. One of the things we set up as an expectation is the AI starts good, you know, but she's never going to be worse than today.
She's right. going to be smarter tomorrow. She's going to be smarter in a month. And it's really cool. We have customers with, you know, thousands of users, millions of pages of content. And we've seen that journey of her getting smarter. And it's actually really cool because, you know, you look at it kind of as her parent and say, right. I'm really proud of what she can now do that she couldn't do three months ago, six months ago, a year ago. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. You brought up a really interesting point. You know, I, I had asked about uh, Lucy's training and then you had brought up, you know, sort of the human training, right? The user training. And so I wanted to ask you about how you see the relationship between human beings, people and AI and tech agents. And, you know, that can even be a little bit broader beyond just Lucy. But yeah, as we move forward and integrate AI and agents into our, our everyday life. Yeah, we always position Lucy as the AI companion. Hmm. She's not doing the work of a person. She is the companion that is your assistant doing all of the exhaustive, minutia, heavy lifting so you can do your thing. And so I'll talk about Lucy and I'll talk more broadly. So, for example, if I'm a, if I'm a researcher at a large CPG, you know, think of about a company like a Pepsi or a Reckitt or a Church and Dwight, somebody like that. And I get an assignment and my assignment means I'm going to spend dozens of hours doing that thing I mentioned earlier, uh, searching SharePoints for documents and then doing keyword searches inside of those documents, searching the third parties like the Mintels and Euromonitors. There isn't a lot of high value in the search. There's the high value in finding the data you need and then being able to synthesize what to do with it to lead to the right outcome. And Lucy doesn't do that extra layer of synthesis. There are some AI systems out there that say, oh, well, we're going to summarize the results. We're going to do all of this. We're going to come up with the answer. The answer is 12. And it's one of those things that demos good, but in the real world of just pure raw data, oftentimes is incredibly hard to get to. And so we think of Lucy being a tool of personal enablement. We think of her as the companion or the assistant. And we think of her as the per as the the assistant that's going to search all those SharePoints, all those third-party sources, and she's going to do what would have taken hours, and she's going to do it in, in a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. And then her companion's going to say, I didn't know we had that research. This is a fabulous deck. Some, you know, I didn't realize somebody in a different department had already done this work three weeks ago or three months ago or last year. And are we going to save nights? Are we going to save weekends? Are we going to allow people to spend more time using their brain on the intellectual pursuit of now that I have, you know, 15 pieces of great research instead of the three that I would have found on my own over hours. Mm -hmm. So I have more research that's relevant. I have the right stuff. Um, I'm going to get rid of any of the false positives where I just found the one data point and it was the wrong one and I didn't know it because I'm going to see all the data points. And then the person's going to spend their time actually thinking about the real project and the outcome and what is it going to mean for their business. And so they're going to save time and they're going to get better work done. So we get really excited about Lucy for that, but I think it also falls into just the whole broad area of automation. Mm. You know, whether you're talking about a factory, whether you're talking about, or the other extreme, what AI is doing in this, you know, it's all around automation. It's all about taking really repetitive, time-consuming, low-value tasks and automating them so that 
individuals can accomplish more. And in that regard, I don't think the robots are taking our jobs anytime soon. I think that people that are in creative fields, I think people that are in strategy fields, I think people that are in research and other high intellect roles are going to still need to be doing what they're doing for years in a good way. We all need jobs. We all need to, you know, we all need to work, <laughs> but they are going to be aided by technology and we're going to be able to keep up that there's ever increasing demands on what people need on us. And we're going to be spending our time in more valuable places. Yeah, I noticed when looking at the website that, you know, a lot of a lot of companies talk about data all the time, right? And and you are in the world of data, right? You're taking companies' data and helping them make that more accessible. And but all of your messaging is about knowledge, right? So you, you kind of talked about this difference between data, knowledge, and then that next step, which is like, you know, the synthesis and what the Greeks would refer to as wisdom, you know, where we're <laughs> trying to, you know, move it forward. So anyway, I was wondering about how you guys see the problem of knowledge and data and and that last step kind of yeah. in this era of big data, because now before you would have a library, you would have the number of resources that you had was so much more limited. But now it's like it's become a behemoth, right? Like it's it's almost uh, getting through all the noise is, is the toughest part. So how do you guys see that? So where I live in Minnesota, General Mills, the maker of you know everything from Lucky Charms and Captain Crunch to Wheaties, is headquartered. Uh, they are not a customer of ours, but which so I can talk about them as an outside party. Okay. Imagine <laughs> how many brand managers they have, because every yogurt product, every Duncan Hines or sorry, Betty Crocker product, every cereal product has a brand manager and they are in those jobs for like two years. So when somebody moves on because they get promoted, I'm no longer the brand manager of of, you know, Captain Crunch. I get I'm on Cheerios or I'm on something else. Everything they worked on in that past job, the data is still there in their systems, but the knowledge goes with the people. Hmm. So retention yeah. of institutional knowledge is a huge one. And the thing is, can you imagine how many times they have studied the audiences that buy cereal <laughs> or buy a fruit bar or a brownie mix? And you know, to me, it's like they have all this lost knowledge. They don't have lost data. The data is in their systems. It's backed up. It's stored. It's theoretically accessible, but it is dark because nobody knows it exists. I don't know how to find it. And if I put in, you know, Cheerios audience into a SharePoint search and I get 16,000 documents, hmm. which if the average document is, let's say, 100 pages, I've got an unbelievable amount of content. Right. So how am I going to find any of it? So unless I can ask somebody and they will point me to it. It is gone. It's gone. And so we do think of data is knowledge. We think that in some ways we solve the NASA problem. You know, the NASA problem is that they once had all these amazing people that could launch stuff into space. And then they all retired in an era where no, you know, nobody was launching things to the moon. And all of a sudden they wouldn't be able to do it again. Hmm. Now, you can have a whole different argument about SpaceX and everything else, which right. is super cool. But, you know, NASA's own internal capability, their knowledge became lost. We have customers that are in IT management. They have systems that were built five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Those builders, sometimes they were third-party contractors that came in or you know companies that were on an assigned project. 
Maybe they were people that are still employed by the company, but they've moved on to other projects. So who's there that knows how the stuff they once built five, 10, 15 years ago even works? Mm -hmm. So Lucy gets connected to frequently asked questions, training videos, source code documentation, the stuff that was created at the time the system was created so that people of today that need to support those systems can ask questions and see what were those people thinking. That's knowledge. I mean, it's made of data, but it's not. Right. Yeah, I was recently in a in a vintage shop and my partner picked out a Levi's jacket from, I think, the late 70s, early 80s. And the guy at the vintage shop says, yeah, the people from Levi's come here all the time because we source vintage stuff and they see stuff in our store that they have no record in their company of, of ever having designed, you know, cause they'll, they prototyped different things. They did limited releases. And yeah. he said that he often has the people come into his store and they, they have sort of a museum or something of, of some of their best works. And, and <laughs> they go to him to find out, you know, what those uh, even are, what they, what they created. So again, that, that institutional knowledge isn't even sometimes living in the institution anymore. Yeah. Um, so you got to find that, you know, creative ways to access that. Yeah. So you've been a serial entrepreneur and I'm sure all of it has gone just so easily. No mistakes, uh, no, no trips, nothing. No, but what are some of the, the hard-earned lessons that, that you've learned when starting these new ventures, um, cultivating them, and then, yeah. as you said, even eventually exiting them, and especially as from a business perspective, but also from a technology perspective? Yeah. So I've been a five-time entrepreneur. I've been on the board or advisory to other entrepreneurial businesses. Uh, I've mentored people. And so I've seen a lot. And, you know, the things that are that are true is, you know, as a entrepreneur, you know, you build this plan and it starts at point A and it goes to point B. And there's this beautiful line that goes, you know, at a perfect 45 degree angle to right. the right. <laughs> but the real path is a twisted turning maze. If you would have asked me five and a half years ago when we started on this, you know, would it be on this trajectory? I had a different vision of where we were going. I had a different path. There were, and we've made all kinds of blunders. You know, five times in, we still make uh, mistakes that should be avoidable. I think that maybe the benefit is if, if as an entrepreneur, you start out and there's 10 giant potholes in the road ahead of you, you know, we avoided seven of the 10 through experience, but we still <laughs> went straight head first into three of them. And... <laughs> You know, you just have to make sure that the blunders or mistakes aren't, you know, life-threatening or fatal. Now, I will say that I think every one of my ventures has had a pivot point that was not expected. I would say that every one of them had a near-fatal but non-fatal experience <laughs> along the way. And that it was probably the necessity to solve that near-fatal scenario that finally allowed us to kind of prevail and figure it out and make it succeed. A friend of mine who's both a, uh, an investor in my company, it's been an investor, a couple of my companies. She said to me uh, about two years ago, we were scratching our heads. Like I felt we were on the cusp, but I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to fool myself. I don't, you know, cause one thing that entrepreneurs have, good entrepreneurs have unfailable belief that they will succeed. 
And it's not that they will succeed. And it's not that they are right. And it's not that even when they are have that unfailable belief that they should have it. They may be delusional. <laughs> but good entrepreneurs believe they will succeed. And so my friend, my investor, Joy, said, I invest in you because I know you won't quit. And part of entrepreneurship is never quitting, never allowing yourself to fail. And, you know, th this one's, you know, you'd think number five should be the easiest. In some ways, it's been the hardest. And part of it's the hardest goes back to our earliest discussion. We're not on the leading edge. Right. We're more on the bleeding edge with this one. And there's some safety in being on the leading edge and picking good bleeding edge winners. Hmm. Because here we had to be ahead of it. And it's a, been a different experience for us. Now, we're starting to go from the bleeding edge to the leading edge. These things are becoming mainstream, you know, where customers, we were excited to sell, you know, a 10-seat pilot two years ago. We have customers starting with, you know, 250 users day one on a path to 5,000. That's, you know, it's a lot easier. And we've fought hard to get there. But yeah, this has been, there's been a lot of challenges because we've been, you know, we've been inventing or creating a market at the same time as some others have been trying to invent and create similar markets. But we've run into our share of mistakes, but we don't quit. And we always believe we're going to figure it out and make it work. I think that's some great life advice <laughs> in general <laughs> for business and, and for everything else. So getting back to that sort of leading edge, bleeding edge, what are some of the avenues or areas of AI and ML that, that you're seeing, that you're finding really compelling, that you think will be fully integrated in the next, let's say, five years, and then those that are, that are just going to start cresting in that period? I think the thing, and we're putting a lot of energy to this, and I'm super excited for it, is how we're going to get conversational. Now, hmm. conversational AI and bots have been around for a while, but it's hard to make it work. I mean, I get frustrated. I was calling AT&T yesterday because I was having an, an issue. And I was like, oh, I do not want to talk to your automated bot. It's never, <laughs> it's never, ever, ever going to solve my problem. And, you know, a lot of the AI stuff and the conversational is, you know, it started with, you know, people making these decision trees or trying to use natural language to funnel people into these right areas. And, you know, you can demo it and make it work. I, I always think we can demo it and make it work, but can we make it work? Right. That's a different thing. Does it yeah. work in the wild west of, I have a real question and am I going to get a real solution? And we want to, and it's something that we will be, we, we're in beta now, we're going to be rolling out very shortly. We're going to go from our traditional web interface to allowing people to ask questions through Teams and Slack. Mm. And I think it's going to be, I, I'm super excited for the idea that you know, somebody could put a question into Teams and put at Melody, at Scott, at Lucy, and the first respondent might be the AI <laughs> saying, here's the answer to that question. And to do it in a way that's similar to the way, say, a Siri or an Alexa doesn't, well, a Siri or Alexa has to come up with its best answer and articulate that in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And we have, we're getting to the point where we are doing that. And that for us is something that there's some safety to the full web interface where you get a little bit of nuance, say, well, here are our best answers. You can pick the best answer out of it versus mm -hmm. I can only in a, you know, in a Teams or Slack, I can only give you one. Right. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to have, you know, 10 pages of copy um, <laughs> with all the possible permutations. You're going to say, here's the answer. 
And being able to pull that out of, you know, a million pages of content without specific training or decision trees or pre-programmed structures. And to be able to do that effectively is something that we've been working hard at and we're pretty excited for what we're going to be able to do. Wow. Yeah, that that sounds very exciting. I can't I can't wait to see that. So even looking a little bit further, this is my last question that I like to end with. If you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2041, what does this world that you imagine, what does it look like? Oh, geez. That's, you, you have to, you can get a different answer in different days. I mean, <laughs> okay. I, I, you know, having, being a parent with kids, I'm terribly worried about the political environment in our country that's become so stratified. I am very concerned about how is there a debate on climate change when every, you know, it's kind of like if I look up and point at the sky and say it's blue, you'd say, okay, yeah, it's blue. Well, you look at climate change, you say, okay, you know, you have, you know, forest incinerating, you've got, you know, crazy, you know, weather events that are not like the ones we grew up with. And so when I think about the world, you know, 2041, I worry about what is the culmination of will we do the right things for climate? Will we, we've always been a polarized environment. I mean, you know, we fought a civil war at one point when you say, well, back in the good old days, well, you know, back in, you know, 1860, the same forces that divide us divided us as a country then. But generally as a society, we've we've pulled it together. I believe that we'll pull it together, but (laughs) some days it's hard to believe in that. From a technology standpoint, I think about the things a little bit like, you know, the environments of Snow Crash and Ready Player One, the advances of technology in VR. I don't know if you've you know played with any of the latest stuff from Oculus lately. You know, if you can imagine 10 years of evolution on that technology, 20 years of evolution on that technology, it's unbelievable the virtual worlds that we will be able to experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just came out of, I took the family to Disney, which seems crazy because I've been living in my COVID bunker most of the last, you know, 19, 20 months. But we went to Disney and rides like Pandora. And of course, these are billion dollar attractions or Rise of the Resistance, which Disney put a phenomenal amount of money in. It's like you're in the movie Avatar. It's like you're in mm. Star for 15 minutes. It's like you're in a scene of Star Wars. It's so incredibly real. And the thing is, what is at one point a billion dollar set piece at Disney, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, the evolution of technology, what will be available to us in our home in VR or AR Mm -hmm. is going to be so amazingly immersive that, you know, the immersion of say Ready Player One won't seem like science fiction. Well, there seem to be a lot of people betting on this. Uh, I think Facebook just announced that they're changing their name or their parent company to Meta. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's been interesting. There's been a, a couple of guests so far that have brought up this AR and VR and, and the metaverse. And I definitely have mixed feelings about it. I love outside and, and the reality of, uh, you know, my neighborhood and, and interactions with human beings. But yeah, one of my favorite things on Oculus was um, hang gliding, you know, <laughs> through... <laughs> through yeah. I think it was like in Fiji or something like that and uh, you know that was that was one of the times where I was like okay wow this is this is truly truly remarkable and again it was like in technicolor I felt I felt a little bit like I had I was uh 
Dorothy in the the Wizard of Oz, and and I went from you know my my living room to the the Technicolor dream world of, of Fiji. <laughs> so yeah, I, that's uh that's certainly very exciting, and I and I hope that as you brought up before that um that these things you know bring us in closer contact with the natural world, with people who are who are different than us, so that yeah. we can find that bridge that we that we so badly need right now. Yeah. Agreed. Well, Scott, this has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for sharing all of your great stories and and about Lucy. It's it was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, this was excellent. Uh, really enjoyed the time and uh, appreciate being your guest. Thanks for tuning in. We make this program for listeners like you. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your community, write a review or drop us five stars. Every little bit helps spread the word. See you next time.